You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, I'm, I've stolen this opening. It was just used by Dr. Montgomery at our San Diego 1517 conference just a week or two ago. And this is the broad opening uh, following Gill's assignment to me, Why the Reformation? All right, very shortly. Quote, 500 years have passed since Luther's posting of the 95 Theses, and yet another Reformation centennial is upon us. Studies of the four preceding centennials, 1617, 17, 17, 18, 17, and 1917, make interesting reading. There's no doubt that perspective has, uh, perspectives have undergone change. Thus, it has been noted that the 1817 and 1917 centennials, in line with modern nationalistic sentiments, emphasized the effects of the Reformation on the rise of the national state to an extent absent in earlier centennial celebrations when the Holy Roman Empire was still in existence. In existence. But one thing is sure. Every centennial has rung the, ch- uh, the changes on the positive value of the Reformation. Here is a short list of the contributions to civilization regularly attributed to Luther's break with the Roman Church. First, by its insistence on locating the source of salvation as within God's grace alone, the Reformation freed religious believers from the burden of self-salvation and redirected human effort to serving others, becoming, to use Luther's felicitous phrase, a little Christ to one's neighbor. Second, by strengthening the power of secular rulers over against ecclesiastical authority, the Reformation contributed to the rise of the modern state and ultimately to the expansion of religious liberty by way of the separation of church and state, thus preserving religious belief from state control. Third, by its stress on the priesthood of all believers, The Reformation promoted the the equality of every person before God and contributed to the equality of all citizens before the law. Fourth, by its insistence on the individual's right to read and interpret the scriptures, the Reformation moved society in the direction of universal public education and the responsibility of the individual to make personal religious decisions rather than relying on ecclesiastical authority. Six, by its conviction that that God reveals himself both in Scripture and in the natural world, the Reformation provided a key motivation for the 17th and 18th century advances and discoveries in the natural sciences. Seventh, the Reformers' emphasis on individual decision-making may well have contributed to the remarkable economic and social gains in Protestant lands, particularly in Northern Europe and North America during subsequent centuries. All right, there's the broad, the broadest brush. All right, how do I do this in 50 minutes? Um, I decided that the best I could do, given the limitations of time, was to talk about the solas. And I won't even get through that list. For instance, on Solus Christus, I'm going to refer you to a little book that we give away, one I authored on Solus Christus, uh, originally published by Crossway, and now we publish it and just sort of give it away. I don't, you can probably say I'd like one for free and you'll get one. I, I don't know about that sort of thing, but it's just a little booklet, and that's why I won't take time tonight. I decided to start with the hard one, Sola Fide or faith in Christ saves, period, nude, with nothing else. There were places we we could agree with Rome. This wasn't one of them. Um, There are specific canons in the Council of Trent, 
condemning anything that even sounds like that. So, justification by faith alone. Oh, and a lot of this I drew from R.C. Sproul, because we don't have a lot of collision at the point of justification. The reform, we don't collide there. I was once really blessed. We were at a board meeting of uh, the White Horse Inn, and on our board was Robert Preuss. If you're not from Lutheran circles, you wouldn't know that name, but he's a great one. Those Norwegians who came over to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod were great ones, and he was one of them. And I was, we were going to have drinks and smokes, and I just happened to be standing next to Mike Horton, and he looked at Robert and he said, Robert, do we, do we have trouble on the doctrine of justification? And Robert looked at him and he said, Mike, we have trouble at a lot of places. That isn't one of them. And I thought, man, am I glad I was standing here to hear that one. Because Mike is the reformed, reformed theologian of America, whether he admits it or not, he won't admit it. He'd just be embarrassed by me saying that. But he is. And Robert is confessional Lutheranism to the marrow of his bones and knows the details in a way that somebody like me never would. So that sort of conditions this. And I plan to leave with Gill um, this, which is Sproul's book in outline form to just download details. Uh, I thought it was so important I outlined the whole book. And this isn't the sort of thing about which we would disagree. Um, and I'm not going to spend time on where we would disagree, but anyway, that's available to you. I'll give it to Gil, and you just take it at will. Fair enough? All right. Is this thing not standing? Is it collapsing a little? All right. Um, Luther says that faith in Christ alone by itself, nude, is the article with and by which the church stands or falls. Without it, the church falls. In other words, he would say it isn't even a church, if you get this one wrong. Um, and Calvin followed. The importance of it. Sola fide is important not merely, merely because the church stands or falls on it, it's important because we stand or fall on it. No flesh, says Paul, will be justified in his sight. If there will be no justification in his sight, then all disputes about the way of justification are vain and empty. If there's no justification, then there's no gospel. No good news, only bad news. Paul says, by deeds of the law. Justification on the ground of our works is eliminated as an option. The law of God requires perfection, and we don't meet it. Um, but justification is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's provided to all and on, on all who believe. For God to justify the impious, the still sinful, the impious, and himself remain just in the process, the sinner must somehow actually become just but he can't. It's got to be the righteousness of another imputed to him. Two words, if you remember nothing else from this few minutes. Imputed or infused. Reformation is imputed righteousness of Christ, reckoned to us as if ours. And Rome's is real righteousness or you don't get in. Um, I'll say more about that when we're talking about grace. All right, the ground of justification as faith alone. Our justification by faith alone means really justification by Christ and his work alone. It's a righteousness extra nos or outside of us, not a part of us. It's his, not ours. Reckoned is us as if it were really ours. Um, faith is the way we are linked to Christ in a saving way, an instrument, they called it in the Reformation. And I'm going to mention three Latin words, but I'm not going to do the details. Saving faith, 
bottom level, triangle. Bottom level, Latin notitia. The facts. What, what the content is. Not saving. Even the devils have it, but that's the necessary foundation. Next level, assent. That is, can you say the Apostles' Creed without crossing your fingers behind your back? In other words, a husband says to his wife, Honey, I think this stuff might be true. Hmm? Assent. Not assent climbing, assent agreeing. A-S-S. I think this stuff might be true. It's not a person trying to believe it by an act of will. We're incapable of that. Um, weak faith in Jesus saves. Best illustration, this was years ago, Catherine Marshall, who wrote books, good ones for women. An old uneducated lady in Appalachia dying and her Methodist pastor coming to be with her. Utter unbeliever. And she tries to evangelize him before he dies. Best she can. What she's saying to him 12 ways from Friday is, I die without any merit. All of my bet is on Christ and his cross. Everything. And of course, the guy doesn't get it. But she's trying. This doesn't take just the educated. She had the right object. And she knew it. And she was going to die in it. So, Catherine Marshall. Um, Fiducia, the top level, that's the one that there's no way we can produce. What it is, is betting all the blue chips on Christ and His cross. Everything. And it means you're giving up on earning wages. This is, if this isn't true, I'm screwed. This one isn't even realistic. Not even, no matter how long I live or how hard I try, it's already over. Uh, if he's really educated, it'll say it was over in Adam. I came in this way, bondage of the will, um, and there's no way I can get myself out of it. The evangelical doctrine of this is stressing what's called the forensic nature of justification. It's a word from the courtrooms. Um, lawyers recognize this immediately. Justification, the reformers said, is a judicial matter. And that sounds theoretical until you say it's the judge declaring us as if righteous. It's not a righteousness that starts in me and grows and grows and grows. It's not a Nautilus machine. It's a being declared righteous as in a courtroom. It's a bad analogy, but think of the judge just before he casts his judgment on us, takes off his robe, comes down next to us and judges himself instead of us, which is a way of saying what Christ did. He took upon himself our earned sin, our indubitable sin, and took it on himself. Peter says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Or Paul, um, he made him to be sin itself, though he had none. I'm going to give you booklets here that gather these scriptures together. And I said to Scott earlier, even if I boff this lecture completely, the paper is going to pull me out. Um, so they've printed all of this up for you to take a lot of it. Um, so the real difference is that Rome is going to say righteousness has to be just like in the courtroom without any of that imputation stuff. Um, Later on, I'm going to mention debating Carl Keating of Catholic Answers. Carl's opening statement to his position was this. Dr. Rosenblatt is going to say to you that we don't believe in justification by grace alone, but he's wrong. We do. 
later on and say, what's with that? The thing he wouldn't say was sola fide, faith alone. No Roman Catholic who knows this stuff is ever going to say that. The canons of Trent condemned it, as I said, 12 ways from Friday. Um, So the real issue here is the ground of justification. What's it? Is it? I don't know. Yeah, that's. that's good. Is it? Is it sinking? Didn't you have any duct tape? <laughs> I I kept pulling it up. I think you're there. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um. So the the evangelical doctrine is justification by a declared righteousness, Christ's, not ours. Declared as if ours. Forensic. Um, Christ's righteousness is the one that saves us. You say to a Roman Catholic, you're assured of your salvation, and they think you're being a moral ass. Huh? Because they think you're talking about yours, and that you're sure you're going to get in. But they have no... In Rome, there is no sure you're going to get in. You hope. Uh... But that goes, in their view, if you have to be cleaned up. Another thing Carl said in this debate was, the difference between Dr. Rosenblatt and me is that I believe that God is only going to allow good souls into heaven. Dr. Rosenblatt disagrees. And I did. Boy, did I disagree. But it put it nicely in one sentence. Uh, Sinners are going to get into heaven. Some of you mentioned that the gospel for those broken by the church. Sinners are going to get into heaven because the righteousness that's going to get them in isn't theirs. It's somebody else's and it happens to be perfect. And you're just linked with it by by faith. So, um, Rome's charge is if God's going to remain just and allow that sort of sloppiness, then it's just a fiction, a legal fiction. And the evangelical or Lutheran or Reformed answers back, it's just the opposite. It was very, very real. Christ in His dying was dying as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and it's going to work. Every believer who dies a believer in Christ will be saved. Every single one of them. Not a one lost. Um... So, saved by the righteousness of Christ. Um, And Rome has 27 different kinds of grace. I'll say that later on, but it all comes to the same thing. What Carl said, God is only going to allow good souls into heaven. And Reformed or Lutheran go, that is absolutely dead wrong. Absolutely dead wrong. Because we're not talking about our righteousness at all. We're talking about His, not ours. It never seems to make any sense to them, but um, Rome's position is you've got to be just and then God will recognize it. That's going to take a whole lifetime of struggle and you might get close to the end, but there's no such thing as being assured of your salvation unless you reach that. So what's justification? It's God recognizing they become just. I've got to let them in. Good luck with that plan. Huh? So, um, infused righteousness, the Roman doctrine, uh, that I can uh, let some of the paper do it for you. I'll, I'll have these notes available to you at the end. And it's exactly what Luther finally saw wouldn't work. All that infused righteousness to help you get to where you were really righteous. That's what was driving him crazy. God is holy. I'm not. That's a problem. And it took a while. It was uh, when he finally sort of got it, it was with the help of Philip Melanchthon and it was later as he, Rome's dumbest decision in all of its history was when somebody said, let's make a Bible scholar out of him. Boy, was that ever stupid. 
So slowly, 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 um, Luther began to get it with help. What about faith and works? Well, the Roman view is faith plus works equals justification. Luther said that's not only not the answer, it's a problem. The Reformation view was faith in Christ all on its own saves and it'll spill into good works. But that spill isn't what saves you. Christ's death does. Just it. So Rome would say works are a necessary precondition for justification. The Reformation would say works are a, are a fruit of it and not part of it. They spill into it, but that's not part of what saves you. Later on, I'm going to say, uh, think of two columns, one headed J and the other headed S, justification and sanctification. Just a minute. Um, the verses you want to be familiar with, if you're always in Roman Catholic circles, are almost always in the book of James, and particularly chapter 2. Um, they ignore hundreds of verses by Peter and Paul, but by George James they have memorized. Huh? And from confirmation onwards. Um, the Reformation people will quote Paul, justified by faith without the deeds of the law. I mean, it's in the text. I printed over and over and over examples of it in that booklet for you. Just verses. Or another one I love is in Romans 11. If by grace, then not by works. If by this, then not by that. And I say to myself, I'm not a lawyer, but even I can understand that. If by this, then not by that. All right, what about grace alone? Um, the absolutely necessary background to this is the condition all of us children of Adam are in. Uh, Luther pressed this hard. He said, just the first commandment is the one that just, that's the end of it. You don't even need the next nine. The first one just clobbers us and does that in detail. Um, the absolute holiness of God and the utter sinfulness of every man ever conceived in the normal way that excludes one. Hmm? What does the Bible mean by grace and what doesn't it mean by grace? Uh, the booklets, I hope, help you on this. I've, they'll be available to you at the end for free. Um, I've got the verses in one of them. Another one I've got a little short text of Melanchthon and Chemnitz on what does sola mean, or what are the solas and why. Um, variously named, sometimes called the exclusive particles. And what it is, is a very careful analysis of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and the prepositions. I mean, really, this is careful work. It isn't long, but boy, is it careful by grace, through faith, top to bottom, for the sake of Christ and his dying, propter Christum, and apart from works. Uh, so that's why I gave you that one. What about the word grace? A misstep here can ruin anybody's case. Um, I quoted what Carl Keating said in the opening to the debate we were having, saying that Rod's going to tell you we don't believe in sola gratia, but he's wrong, and we do. What was that about? Well, different understandings of the word grace. Carl understood grace as necessary, free, infused power to do the good works, and it's the good works that are going to save you or not. Their own language is the language of infusion. Grazia infusa. That's their own writings. Or grazia medicalis. Medicinal grace. The idea is you're on, on uh, the beach and you've gotten hit by fire, German fire from the top. You're not dead, but you're bleeding and you need a medic like crazy or a priest if you're going to die. <clears throat> but you're not dead yet. 
And the evangelical side is, no, you're dead. In Adam, you're dead. Um, no cooperation on anything. You're dead. Uh, and worse, we're worse than dead. We're enemies. We made ourselves enemies of God. We're God haters. Um, we're alienated from Him. All sorts of bad language, depressing bad language. But it's necessary for the cross to be the cross. Uh, it starts with uh, our dead of will, dead of anything. Certainly a decision for Jesus and asking Jesus into your heart. Uh, that was over with with Adam um, and so forth. What this calls for is a lexicon. Is that part of your vocabulary? A lexicon? What does the word mean? Not some, a dictionary, but a lexicon is going back with a foreign word back into where did it come from. Um, not a Lutheran lexicon, not a Roman Catholic lexicon, just a good lexicon. In my day, the defining one was from the University of Chicago Press, hardly a Christian institution, and the editors were Arndt and Gingrich. And there you get the, the beginnings of a particular Greek word. Even in the secular world, they, they have sometimes, if it was used in classical usage, if it was ever used, uh, rarely, it's almost purely Christian word. Uh, but at least you can find out what it means in a new, from a neutral source. And you're not going to find Rome's definition of grace there. In any good one, you're going to find what we use. Um, or another one is catechisms. They're in simple language because they have to be in simple language. They're for children. Um, in the case of the Roman uh, catechisms, I reach for the old Baltimore catechism. Used in the days of Bing Crosby and forever in America. The Baltimore catechism. Uh, that is, for children, the theology of Trent, the Council of Trent, when Rome first went down on paper with what do you hold. Um, these are free, usually, if you visit a Roman Catholic parish and ask for a copy of the Baltimore Catechism, the priest will take you down into the basement, open up an old closet, and ask you how many you want. <laughs> you know, you want one, you want three, take ten. Now well, they're down there rotting. But that Baltimore Catechism was what most people my age grew up with. Thousands of them. Thousands. And it's the real thing. In the case of Luther's smaller catechism, almost any translation... Simple. With verses or without, take your pick. That's another way to go at it. Um, now I said, without a strong biblical doctrine of sin, none of what I'm saying tonight uh, will make any sense whatever to you or to anybody else. Uh, our guesses, yours, mine, and everybody else's, will be bad guesses. No matter how clever or how brilliant, They'll be off the mark. You and I, or anyone else, will every time overestimate our imagined abilities, our imagined freedom, particularly of the will, and will downplay our sin as mistakes. Or say, well, nobody's perfect, you know. Hmm. Now, we don't have to, time to do that this evening, that kind of an analysis of a biblical view of sin, but it's really important. You can do it alone or in a Bible class. Some Bible classes are so bad they should have never taken place. But on a subject like this one, a biblical view of sin, that would be worth your time and mine as Christians. And make sure beforehand that the subject will be our condition of sin, not just our sinful acts. The latter are trivial compared to the first. Um, if we spend time on our acts of sin, it's going to end up in self-improvement. A waste of time. But if you spend it on, what does the Bible say about my condition of sin, that's worth knowing. Um, it'll be no fun. It'll be thoroughly depressing, 
But know beforehand, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. What are some of the key biblical passages regarding grace? What most of these share in common is that they are presented in the New Testament, or Old Testament too, but primarily New, as the opposite of earning. The opposite of wages. Ever had that pericope on Sunday mornings? Your whole congregation is filled with businessmen. And there's a parable of the guys who come to work at four and first thing they do is take a coffee break. And then you show up at the end of the line to get paid an hour later. That drives businessmen crazy. Just absolutely crazy. But it's not a lesson in business. It's an illustration of what God does. He pays off people fully into heaven when they accepted or trusted Christ four minutes before they died. It's a parable. And one that makes no sense if you're trying to figure out how to do your business. It's insanity. But as a parable, I sometimes wonder in a congregation, how are businessmen hearing this? Uh, you can't run a business like that. So, uh, the reason we have to do a study like this is because this subject is completely counterintuitive. There's something in us that said, whatever the truth is, that can't be it. I tell my students, if I do a presentation in, a, in a, some semblance of a place where my opponent is a priest doing their theology, <coughs> and I'm doing classical Lutheranism, it is completely understandable that a husband walks out to the car afterwards with his wife and he says to her, you know, I could get what the priest was saying. That made sense to me. I have no idea what Rosenblatt's point was. And I was doing Christ doing the saving and faith doing the gripping and the result being free entry into heaven or justification of you the sinner before a holy God. And his comment at the end was, what was his point anyway? Beat, beats me. I expect that. Because the gospel is so counterintuitive. Uh, as a son of Adam, as a daughter of Eve, many of these verses will probably make you angry at God. If you get them, they're going to make you mad. Because you're not going to have any part in it other than as a recipient. Well, what do I have to do? Sit there and listen to them. Well, what else? Nothing else. Right now, just listen. This is, this is being given to you for free. You can't buy it. You try buying it and it's gone. Most of the book of Galatians. There they tried to add something on. They didn't contest Jesus' death, His blood, it's saving nature. It just needed a little Moses to be added to it. A little circumcision, a little kosher, a little... Eh? Paul, it's the only epistle he wrote where he doesn't have a standard, polite introduction of all his letters. Just that one. His opening. You stupid Galatians! Who's drawn you away from the Gospel I preached? And they didn't reject it. They added to it. If I were a Roman Catholic, that book would keep me awake nights whether anything had been added to. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some verses on this. They're in the booklet, but just as a sample. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Or, for by grace are you saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And the faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Both sides of it are gift. Don't try and buy it. Um, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Or, but because of His great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Romans 11. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. (coughs) It's got to be one or the other, not a combo. The combo will destroy grace. It's got to be free, or there isn't any. Um, if, If justification does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy, Romans 9. What about some of the ones we teach kids? Some of them aren't bad. About grace? Um, unmerited favor. Sunday school? Not bad. It doesn't mention Christ. That's got to be explained. But still, it, it, the phrase means apart from human effort or merit. How about the acronym? G-R-A-C-E? God's riches at Christ's expense? Again, not bad at all. At a scholarly level, the favor dei propter Christum, the favor of God on account of Christ and his death and his blood. The favor dei propter Christum. That's more, you know, scholarly. But, but the others are trying to get that across. And not Christ in any and all ways, particularly in his dying. The preposition of justification is for. For us. For you. For you. For you. So it focuses on his being the Lamb. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And absent this, you and I are going to face the Holy God without a mediator standing next to us. In the 16th century, they believed that this was everything. Not like our century. Everything. How do you get there? And Rome said by this combination, and Luther said, just Christ. Give up on the earning. Give up on wages forever. You'll have to do this every day. That's part of what he meant by going back to our baptisms. This is so counterintuitive. But we need it preached into our earballs, and we need it water poured on us in the name of the Trinity, and we need it into our mouths with them saying the script they're supposed to say. For you, the death of Christ, it's enough. Huh? All right, finally, what about Sola Scriptura? Now, I'm not going to do this in detail, but I'm going to tell you how you can get at it in detail. Um, And I'm going to deal with it shortly and in a manner that's a little more akin to philosophy, but give me a chance. Um, You might have heard of the battle for the Bible in our lifetimes. Um, And in a way, people like you and me won that. Uh, In the Missouri Synod, we proved in 1973, with blood on the walls and blood on the floor, that so help us God, a seminary professor is not going to use weird stuff to somehow say that the Bible isn't God's Word. And we're going to die if we have to on this at this place. 1973. And luckily... The guys who were teaching it got into a huff and stomped out righteously. And we said, we accept your resignations right now. Sold. Um, But if if this branch is cut off, we really are in trouble. Um, You say, how did such a catastrophe happen? Broadly, not just in my church. For generations, grandmothers... And grandfathers have believed that the Bible text is, quote, given by inspiration of God's Holy Spirit through human writers such that it is God's word, as is no other book. Now, I'm on the side of those grandmothers and those grandfathers, even if their own parents or their churches 
never trained them how to offer an argument in favor of their view. And most didn't, including mine. And I'm against, on grounds of both evidence and logic, the view of almost every and all, all European theologians of our century. It is the modern view of the inspiration of the Bible that's the equivalent of the emperor's new clothes, not the one grandma held. The modern view can be shown to even fall short of being false. That would be progress, to be false. You say, how can it be even worse than false? Good question. It can be, as philosophers put it, meaningless. That's worse than false. A view of the Bible that is false would be an improvement over what most churches and clergy hold with regard to the inspiration of the Bible today. Let me give you an example. Ready? Here it comes. Blue sleeps faster than Wednesday. It's got both a subject, predicate, a noun, a verb, a period at the end of it. Now, if you saw that on a true-false test, which box would you mark? Mark it true, blue does sleep faster than Wednesday. Mark it false, oh no, blue does not sleep faster than Wednesday. That piece of gibberish is the equivalent of the modern liberal Protestant's view of the inspiration of the Bible. It isn't even false. Or you can think about it, if you know your New Testament, you can think of it as glossolalia, as speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14, where people can't understand other people. Um, no wonder Paul put restrictions on it. He said, let most of your language be so that the unbeliever can understand what you're saying. He said, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but uh, confine yourself because you've got unbelievers there and you need to speak to them in language they can understand. Um, so if I can't do the argument for a high view of Holy Scripture's infer in, uh, inspiration, and it's even in its errancy, inerrancy, what I can do for you is to recommend to your parish, maybe to you, where you can find that argument. And I can do that. In print, it is Dr. John Warwick Montgomery's Crisis in Lutheran Theology, <coughs> Volume 1. Especially a particular essay, Inspiration and Inerrancy, A New Departure. But this chapter isn't just confined to Lutherans. It applies to all Protestant churches. Southern Baptist, OPC, URC, Nazareth, all of them. Now, in audio, and this one I really recommend, Dr. Montgomery has done an audio series directed to the laity. The title of the series is Sensible Christianity. That's where he does, in detail, an argument for the total inspiration of the Bible. And it is completely understandable once a person knows what an argument is or isn't. And it's pretty simple. Um, the wonderfulness of this argument is that it's in line with science, empirical method. You start with just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not as God's word, just as history, good or bad, legit or illegit. And then you work from just that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as history, not as God's word. And it's like the fellow who bought the field and discovered later on a treasure buried in it. You accept the gospel writings just as history and you'll be amazed what you find as you follow the argument to the end. I've given you one little taste of it in one of the passouts tonight from John Stott. One page, Teacher and Lord. Why do we accept a high view of the inspiration of Scripture? Because that was his view of the Old Testament text. Now, if you try and get out of that, you end up saying, I know more about a question in religion than Jesus did. 
That's a very bad place to be. Huh? Anyway, there's that one page pass out for you. But I recommend, and there's vested interest in this because we sell all of Dr. Montgomery's stuff at 1517. So admission of, but it's not as expensive in audio as it used to be. It's much cheaper to do that now. And I recommend that you have one set at least of sensible Christianity in the parish library so people can check it out. But be forewarned, if you listen to that thing and find it as I think you're going to find it, my son has discovered selling audio for almost 20 years now that people who like something tend to buy it. So keep your Visa card away from you as you listen because you're going to end up pulling it out and saying, I want a copy of that. Can you pirate it? Sure, we've got it wide open. You can pirate it. But most people... I think of myself with software. If I use this stuff and like it, I want to own it. Sensible Christianity uh, on CD so people can play it, even if they're traveling, if you've got a CD slot, whatever it takes to be able to listen to it. John Warwick Montgomery, Sensible Christianity. He'll set up the case for you, and he'll do it in detail, and you'll find it amazingly understandable. Grandma was right about Scripture. And today's scholars are full of crap. Alright, I'll stop with that. Okay, thanks for your attention. Grace? It's why you want to, in some way in your parish, always be having the basic message available to people who are willing to listen to it. In our circles, we call it the pastor's inquirer's class. The only problem is our seminaries and most others don't teach what I ended with here. A case for a high view of the Bible's inspiration. Our guys were never given that. At Missouri Synod seminaries, they were just taught the true view. Bible's inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21, uh, those are included in the booklets, and that's that. Now, compare that to Islam, where you assert, huh? submit or die. This is the faith. Submit or die. Those are assertions. Not arguments. You're just asserting. Anybody can assert. What people need, a lot of people, especially ones in the sciences, is have you got an argument for that? Have you got an argument for it? The answer is, yes, I do, but it was given to me after seminary by someone else. Not at seminary. I think that's crazy for my church to not have any courses in apologetics. I think it's nuts. Um, but it is available elsewhere. And I, that's why I'm giving you an elsewhere. And believe me, you can... Dr. Montgomery did those lectures in every city in the U.S., in every kind of church you could imagine, just to turn loose the how-tos of defending Christianity as true, not as helpful, as true. Or how you can overthrow it. And it can be overthrown. How many religions can be factually overthrown? Think about that for a minute. There's only one that can be factually overthrown and in the New Testament tells us how. 1 Corinthians 15. Show me that Christ's bones are still in some cave, in some Near Eastern cave, and I'll give it up. I'm of all men most to be pitied. 
Christianity is where a person should start because at least it can be factually overthrown. That's an advantage. doesn't sound like it in the beginning, but it is. Um, how would you overthrow Scientology? How would you overthrow Islam? How would you overthrow Mormonism? I mean, you just add one after the other, after the other, after the other. It doesn't sound like an advantage, but it really is. Christianity can be shown to be false by fact. And if you're not a philosopher, that sounds like a disadvantage, but it really isn't. It really is an advantage. Does that make any sense at all? We're almost alone in that. You can show Christianity to be false, and I can tell you how. But on the other hand, if you find the Gospels to be historically true, the one we were just talking about just this evening, was Jesus asleep in the boat, and the storm comes up, and the disciples wake him up, said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And he wakes up and he looks at the storm and says, Shut up! And it obeys. And some wise person in the boat said, What manner of man is this that he speaks to the wind and it obeys? Smart guy. Okay, enough. I've used my time. I've used my time. But Q&A we can do, but I think... How we... <laughs> you talk about, about the, the thoughts of grace making us mad. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I agree. Why, why is that? It's how we are in Adam. Not only does that sound strange to me, it pisses me off. If I was going to, that dichotomy of being sinful and just, when you said we hate God, if you can't admit it's you hate yeah. God you love. Yeah. We do love Him, but yep. our evidence shows we hate Him all the time. Yeah, by our actions, our that's the that's the advent. Yep, we're doing. that that's our old, and it'll be with us till we die. But it's really to the to the one who isn't a Christian that is a hard thing to hear. Well, I know I. You know, I'm I'm not a Christian, but I'm very spiritual. Really, what's the cash value of that? Anyway, it's so hard for us to hear about grace and not because we want to control and we want to play our part, and our part is simple recipient. What did we saw it laid out in Genesis three? What Satan said was. You know, that uh, you want to be in control of your own life? You want to be like God? Yeah. And Adam said, yeah. 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 That too. Yeah. Uh, We soften the message and we ought not. But say it of yourself. You don't have to say, you're this. You can say, I'm this. I'm a God hater by nature. I'm an enemy of God. In Adam, I caused it. And followed up later with worse. Do it autobiographically. It's not an accusation of the other guy. It's your story and mine too. And yet, says Paul in Romans 5, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that condition, he died for us. All all one-sided. Gosh, that's hard for us. <laughs> it will make you mad. I mean, because we know we don't deserve it. Some do, some don't at all. It varies. It's kind of uh, not binary, but uh, what is it? The LP records were no. <laughs> what were they? Analog. analog. Yeah, this is analog. They're all sort. There's all sort of a spread but we should know and it shouldn't surprise us when somebody's hostile hearing this and you should say i know i am too 
This is not the message I would ever want to hear. If there's a God, I wouldn't want to hear this one. It's depressing. There's no good news without first the bad news. And it's pretty bleak. Uh, It certainly doesn't go well in American soil. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that even in the darkest night, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. Yeah, this doesn't go well with Americans. I think because it's not fair. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that'll come up. Think of the thief on the cross. Right. He wasn't baptized. <laughs> I think some of our guys wish that weren't in there. are good people. Sure, sure. At the level of what the reformers called civil righteousness. It doesn't save, but it's praiseworthy. A guy who grabs his helmet and falls on a German grenade and gets his chest blown out and six guys live because of it. Reformers said that is, at the civil level, completely praiseworthy. Just won't save. And we just always feel too bad that most of them are pagan. Yeah. Yeah. Civic righteousness. It's praiseworthy. And finally, they'll, it'll be a gift of God. They don't know that, but it is. But it's not saving. Only Christ in His dying. And in our times now, it's going to be, well, who do Christians think that they are? What kind of exclusivity? And you say, don't blame it on me. Blame it on the Bible text. I'll show you where it is. But it's very core. It's the most radically inclusive thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every man, woman, and child. And that's part of why I'm not a Calvinist. Yeah. I think those verses that talk about whosoever and all and the world mean what it looks like they mean. And Calvin disagrees. Paul's got a pretty good blueprint in Romans for bringing Yeah. Point to bear. Yeah, I wish Germans. Germans are wonderful at doing the individual problem in front of them. Nobody can top us. Us. I'm Scandinavian, but I'm part German. I've paid my dues. Um, at the individual. But if the gallows were ten feet in front of a German, they can't do this. They can't. It's, it's as if it's so foreign to them they can't do it where you do Romans 1 through 8 and 9, or 1 through 8 and then through 11, sweeping. I've done that at a few installations of pastors recently, and there have been a lot of Lutherans there, and immediately their brows furrow, because they're not used to it. But that's part of how we understand a book, is the sweep of it. Um... I wish our guys could do that, and it's just foreign to them. It's too bad, because part of understanding Romans is the sweep of it. One, to the pagan, you never had an Old Testament. Correct, you're screwed anyway. God revealed himself in nature and in conscience, and you pay no attention to it. Romans 2, the Jews saying, get them, Lord, go get them, just like you're doing. And he turns to his fellow Jews and says, it isn't those who are the possessors of the oracles of God. It's those who obey the oracles of God. Have you done that? You have not. That in Romans 3 through the first half, the whole world, guilty and without anything to say before God, the whole world, Jew and Greek alike. End of Romans 3, the beginnings of justification by the death of Christ for free. 
Romans 4. Illustration, Abraham, the illustration, not Moses. Abraham as the illustration of justification by grace through faith. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Romans 5, real peace with God, not that peaceful, easy feeling of the eagles. Real, objective peace with God based on what Christ did in his dying and rising. Romans 6, Paul had never been to Rome. He pre-guesses what his critics going to say. So, we should sin more that the grace would more abound. He guesses they're going to ask that of him because it sounds so wonderful and so free. And he answers it. God forbid you were buried with Christ in his baptism and you were raised again in newness of life. Hmm? Seven. This isn't going to be pleasant, easy, smooth. End of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? I do what I hate. I I do things that I shouldn't want to do and do those instead. Huh? Romans 8. The resurrection at the end and you'll finally be done with this, but only then. And so forth. We don't do that. Huh? Yeah. But you get the idea. And this Germans don't do. They don't do it at seminary. They don't do it any time because it's foreign to them. They're they're masters of the little. Really are masters of the little. Do it really, really well. That's yeah, they're limited to it. Mentally limited to it. One a friend of mine who was a World War II P-51 fighter pilot in the European theater was the first pastor in the United States to have his, what we today call an MDiv, back then it was called a BD, and a PhD in clinical psych. He was the first one. And he warned me about teaching in a German institution. He said, Rod, you got to watch your back. Uh, don't be too free. Um, nobody's stronger at the level of the ratio than a German. That's our strength. But he said the imagination is as bereft and empty as that of a kid on the streets of Seoul during the Korean War. An orphan. And it'll get you. He knew how they worked inside. So, they have their strengths, and I'm the first to acknowledge them. But boy, they've got their weaknesses. Make sense? A lot of people won't be able to be there tomorrow. There's still one story about your dad. The story about the car when you were 16. Yeah. Let me me reach for a note or two. I, I printed a few of these out. Let me reach for just one. Um, my dad was a surgeon and uh, I owe everything to him everything absolutely everything Um, here's one I didn't know this as a kid I found out later on my dad would drive from Tacoma over to the University of Washington Medical School every semester And he would ask the names of the guys who were having to drop out because they were out of money. Then he paid everything to get them to graduation on the one condition that they never knew who gave it to them. Every single semester. Uh, One time I got a phone call from my dad there in the fraternity house at the University of Washington. And I picked up the phone, greeted him, and we talked. And he said, did I hear you once say that you'd like a sports car? I said, Dad, I'd love a sports car. And he said, well, I just saved a young man's life in surgery. And he told me that he'd bought one, and he hates it and wants to dump it. I said, what is it? He said, it's an MGA convertible. He said, I think you need it. 
Um, I think I told you about his lab tech. That'll give you another idea. I'll tell this tomorrow. You know, Japanese lab tech in the office. And Carl was teaching me some basic lab techniques, CBCs, urology, how to do it hands-on. And in the middle of the conversation, he said, do you know I'd work for your dad anytime, anywhere? I said, no. He said, let me tell you why. He said, your dad pays me twice what any other lab tech in the city makes on the sole condition I don't tell him what I make. Conversation coming home from the UW one weekend. He said, how are you doing for money? I said, I'm okay. He said, no, you're not. He said, I'll put some in next week. It's not good to be in college and be broke. I said, I'm not broke. He said, yes, you are. On and on, on and on and on. So, all right. We're going to have coffee or something or dessert or we we pass that or. Okay. Well, don't let enough enough of me. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.